So Michael, I wanted to thank you very much for giving up part of your birthday meeting to uh, talk to us. Um, and my brief is to uh, invite you to talk about mathematics in Oxford in the 70s and 80s. But yes. I thought uh, the sensible thing would be to start with the 60s because my understanding, you came here in 1961. That's right, yes. I <coughs> came as a reader in 1961. The chair that, when Henry White had died, I applied for the chair, but I didn't get the chair. Henry Gary Higgins got the chair, he was more senior. He moved up one, so he let empty the spot as a reader, so I got the job as a reader and <coughs> joined the queue for the next professorship. Right. And did you know Henry Whitehead? Particularly? Yes, quite well. Uh, I used to come over to Oxford to uh, give seminars. And, uh, I, well, he, I was in with the topologists in various ways. Yeah, I knew him quite well, and a uh, very uh, genial chap he was. Mm. He comes across in, there's a, there's a talk by Ida Busbridge, which yes. one can find online, and she's very warm about it. So yes, well, yeah, you see, you see patterns in life. Uh, cricket, the pub after cricket, uh, mathematics. <laughs> oh, and his farm. He had a farm, and he, he had pigs. He inherited it from his uncle. He had a herd of Jersey cattle. So he decided to keep the cattle and build a farm. And he had this farm outside in Islip. And uh, we used to go and visit the farm every year with all, all the mathematics faculty, students at the time. We had a cricket mat. He was a great cr cricket enthusiast. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was a very, very genial chap. You wouldn't think of him as a mathematician. You know. And did you, you communed with the pigs, did you, the, uh, the mathematicians? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got photographs of him. There's a beautiful photograph, Henry Whitehead with a pig in his, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Who were the other Oxford stars? Was Titch Marsh a pig? Well, when I was here, came here, there were four professors. Uh, there was uh, Henry Whitehead, who was a great game, Higman. Uh, there was Titch Marsh, who was a professor of pure mathematics. Titch Marsh was a very taciturn man. He didn't say much. You know, uh, he, he had difficulty getting words out of him. He wrote beautiful books, but he was very shy. Then there were the two applied professors, Charles Coulson, who was a very extrovert, he was, although he was a theoretical chemist, he ran the show and uh, did all sorts of other things as well. He was chairman of Oxfam. And then uh, there was George Temple, who was in you know, quantum theory, like math. Uh, and interesting enough, of the four professors, I was the only one who wasn't a churchman. Greg, Greg Higman was, a, I think, in the congregational lay, lay preacher. And Charles Coulson was a big, amongst the Methodists. And uh, Temple was a Catholic and ended up as a monk. Yes. So I was the only one who was there. Yes. <laughs> did that give a, a particular character to the uh, style of lecturing, did you think? Was it? Well, I suppose they were all used to addressing a public audience. Um, but they were very different personalities. And there's an interesting you know, uh, mixture of personalities. Coulson was the dominant figure. He ran the, he got the old, before we had the Maths Institute, when we just moved out of, they, we had a house called Museum Road. Big, big old house, which has very big rooms occupied by the professors and a couple of classrooms. And he was the one who got that. And before that, there'd be nowhere for mathematics, except the colleges. And then he was instrumental in pushing to get the new building. And he, he was a very influential figure. Mm -hmm. So you became a civilian professor in 1963. That's right. And is that about the time that you moved into the new building? Um, I came in 61. I, was, I had no because I had my office as a professor for a while in the old building. I occupied. I got Titchmarsh's office, mm -hmm. big old room. So it must have been just a little bit late. I mean, I but I became professor in some March, something like that. And so probably later, than, maybe by the next year, it was just going up. And when I was there, there, there were all these discussions about the plans, and we were quite lucky to get the site because you know the university had lots of sites, long-term plans, and 
to this site and offered it to some other people. They said, it's too small for us. So the mathematicians said, we'll grab it. So they grabbed it very fast, and then we, we got, the, and it was designed by uh, Lancaster with the University Surveyor, and uh, it worked very well for, for the size of the faculty. It was very big for the number of mathematicians around in those days. In those days, there were, you know, some colleges had math, math, math tutors, but nobody, practically had more than one. Mm -hmm. And there were four professors, so, you know, you can count up the fingers of one hand how many mathematicians there were around, really. It's noticeable that, well, the, the thing that struck me when I was thinking about this interview, um, the buildings that you've been involved with, because it's always seemed to me the Newton Institute is such a yes. perfect building. Exactly. Newton Institute, I shouldn't take credit for that. People in Cambridge, mainly Peter Goddard, they were the people who worked with the architect and the design. And, you know, I, I, I came in as a figurehead in some sense. Uh, but, but certainly it's a beautiful building and it's been very influential in many other buildings of copied aspects of it. The way it's designed to encourage interaction, mm. open space, and and so on, and uh, yeah, that that was a very 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 nice building, and uh, the, the math building was nice, also a nice building. Well, I, again, I wasn't I wasn't involved in the committee stage doing the planning, but that was one of the early users. Mm. Uh, well, we'd like to feel that in some sense buildings had got better, that they were better adapted to their purpose and so forth. Well, it? I mean, the Newton Institute came quite late, of course, mm. and that has, I think, influenced this building. I mean, mm. The layout, open spaces, staircases, um, this is much bigger, of course, and it influenced a number of institutes in other parts of the world, like the Fields Institute in Toronto, very much modelled on, on that. And that one definitely was one where the building was built around the function, you know, mm. what do the mathematicians want? Mm -hmm. And you want a place where you can interact and meet. And, and the architect, were, he was a small, not very well-known architect, and he was very happy to accommodate the views of the mathematicians. Mm -hmm. Better-known architects come with their own oh, views. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. And, and don't, I don't think Cambridge is nearly as successful, I have to say. The Cambridge buildings, I think, are nothing like us. Uh, the other building, besides the new institute, the new campus. Mm -hmm. it, although it wins architectural prizes. Mm. Not nearly so well adapted to mathematics. It doesn't, yes. The, it's, as, it's as though there are six separate Newton Institutes. Yeah, that's right. At each, at each Newton Institute, all the space is wasted on a big lift and a, and a staircase around it occupies half the space of the tower. Mm. And the offices are afterthought, mm. trying around the other. And then it's multiplied by six. Mm. Terrible waste of space. Partly because they were very much aware that where the buildings were going up, that Stephen Hawking was going to be there. So everything had to be laid out. So Stephen Hawking could go into them, but they didn't need to have six stairwells, enormous size, at the expense of you know, decent office space and also interaction space. Mm. So I think I'm afraid I'm not a fan of the Cambridge building. The, the main cafeteria area is good. Mm. That brings people together. Mm. And the layout looks nice. But otherwise, Newton Institute is far superior. Mm. But done by a small architect who never really got, he competed for various other uh, jobs later on, never actually got it. You know, he never moved up mm. the scale mm. uh, in the fairly small scope, but nevertheless, I think he deserves a lot of credit for the building. Mm. I noticed that there was an earlier set of interviews that you did under the uh, Athena Swan rubric. Yes. And as, as transcribed in the first five sentences of it, on the, you three times make allusion to the size of the room that you've got. And it's clear that you're sensitive to the environment in which you work. I mean, is that... Uh, Oh yes, I mean I, I, I like a big room, and I have been I, mean, I, I can't stand small rooms, pokey rooms. Um, I like space, and partly because I, I, I think when I walk around, I like to walk, 
And if you've got a small office, you can't you know, walk in the corridor. So I, I like, uh, and also I like, but I'm being a bit gregarious, I like to have other people in to talk with, and blackboard and discussions. You can do that comfortably. This is quite a decent sized room. Mine was a good deal bigger. Mm. <coughs> Mine was two, two offices put together. They were, they were units. And when they first built it, put it up, there were four big offices for the four established chairs. They had very grand offices. I had one of those when I was a civilian professor. When I came back as an all-society professor, I had to make do with the... I, I was given a wing, uh, myself and my students. And I put two of the offices together, making myself a big office. Yes. Right. So you, you came back as um, Royal Society Research Professor in 72 or 73? 1973, yes. 73. And that's about the time I was being a, a graduate student. And one of the things that was very vivid in my memory is the illustrious uh, collection of seminar speakers that you had. So in the first year I was there, I think we had Sayre, Bott, Singer, Herzebrook. And it did seem to me that this was one of the extremely useful things for graduate students to be able to, I mean, was it by design on your part that you had? Well, you know, I mean, I, having spent some time in America, as soon as you in America, university, everyone has, a, they have a university mass colloquium, mm. big event, wide audiences, and when I came from Cambridge, <coughs> there they had seminars, they didn't have, mm. and when I came back from America after each visit, I, I tried to encourage the, uh, some similar pattern of large-scale <coughs> colloquium of general interest. So I, we'd invite famous people, we had these nice big rooms down below, <coughs> big, good audience, we'd a lot of turnout to cut across borders and, you know, mix people together, and, and that was deliberate, and I, you know, I invited people at different times, Earlier on, I had people like Mark Katz and Peter Lax. I invited Gelfand, unfortunately, he, couldn't, he wasn't allowed to come. So we invited people who were uh, broader interests, covering a wide range of subjects. And we got very good audiences. You know, mm. those, those rooms <coughs> were pretty well packed out. Mm. And I think it did influence people's students and encourage them and make them feel part of a community. And, yeah, and it was a deliberate policy. Of course, I happened to pally with all these people. It was easy, but <coughs> um, my contacts at Princeton made it easy. But it was a deliberate effort to transport over from America the better aspects of mm. American university system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, with the Americans, in some sense, it's easier for them to travel because all they do is they have to travel across a landmass, as it were. I mean, was it, how feasible was it to have all these people visiting? And did you have to mortgage your house to? to uh... <coughs> well, in the very early days, when when I first came on, I remember very hard getting Sarah to come over and having to get money to pay for his truck over, and there were no research grants and so on. And I've forgotten where they came from, but I got 10 pounds, which was, in those days, enough to bring it on. And it was hard work to get 10 pounds, even for somebody as famous as there. So it was difficult. Later on, it got much easier. There were more. Americans, of course, quite a, came, had their money to fly over, and their research council money became available. <coughs> so money was easier. In the early days, it was, it was, it was really quite hard. And there was not many people, you couldn't get many people. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, so Roger Penrose arrived around about the same time as you in 73. Yes. And it's often seemed to me that it was one of the great pieces of good fortune for Oxford maths that you were both here at the same time. Yes, yes. But um, a lot of the pure mathematical knowledge and technique that he was needing in Twister Theory, you were in a position to uh, supply. Yes, well, see, my, my connection with Roger goes back to when we were graduate students. We were both graduate students in Cambridge at the same time. T technically, uh, both under Hodge. After the first year, he moved across and <coughs> worked with Todd. But we, we knew each other from those days. Uh, then he, we drifted apart. He went into theoretical physics. 
And then we really only met again when he came back to Oxford. And I remember meeting when I was in Princeton, talking to um, Freeman Dyson, and uh, <coughs> saying, talking about Roger Penrose possibly coming to Oxford. And he said, well, uh, Roger did these things on black holes, which were very interesting. He knew about them. But he said, he does these funny things called twisters. I don't understand them. Perhaps you'll understand them. <laughs> very fun. So in fact, as it turned out, when I came, we, Roger kept explaining to me what they were, he was doing. Then I short, shortly after, it dawned on me that what he was doing could be handled very well with all the new techniques coming out of uh, algebraic geometry out of Paris, which I'd been studying. So you know, we managed to bring all that uh, into the theoretical physics and sort of produce a natural marriage between the two subjects, which has flourished ever since. So it, it was, I happened to know him well, Roger well, from early student days, but it was a culmination. He's coming back just at the moment when his techniques required the sort of ideas that uh, I picked up in Princeton and elsewhere. So it was, it was good fortune. And it was, it was all of the uh, uh, deformation theory, the Kadara type theory. Yes. And, but it was also all the sheaf cohomology. That's right. The sheaf cohomology was the one I started. Because I remember Rodney telling me he had all these calculations to do with complicated integrals and singularities. And he kept saying, well, the, the integral of matter is only singularity that counts. And you know, it, was, it was very vague. And he knew what he was doing in terms of computations. Mm. But he had no machinery to handle it. Mm. And, I, I, and then suddenly it dawned on me, I thought one day it clicked. But the, the, what he was doing was just chief cohomology with chick cycles and things. And suddenly, so I remember going, having several sessions explaining to Roger and students the basics of chief cohomology, how it applied, the thing. And they were very, very fast learners. They took it off mm. and very quickly. And before I knew where I was, they were all <laughs> rearing ahead. And it was, it was a good, good uh, piece of, of, of luck. It just happens that. It, Personal contacts are kind of very important in you know, bridging gaps like that. Mm. I remember one of the things that Roger used to say about um, well, it was the, the nonlinear graviton yeah. um, and uh, the possibility of jumping lines and things like yeah. this. And he used to say, "Oh, well, jumping lines." That was in a Tia's first paper. <laughs> uh, is that uh, anywhere close to the? Uh, yeah, I think so. But I remember also Roger came back from a conference in Copenhagen once. And tell me the latest things there. There are these funny things called instantons, oh, yes. which was the angular analog of, of gravitons. And you know, I, I never heard of them before. That was the first time I heard of them. It was also him. And then we sort of moved on to them mathematically. Yes, it was a very interesting uh, period where, where all the ideas were meeting. And of course, I learnt from him a certain amount of the physical significance of these things. And so I, and I was learning physics at the same time that he was right. picking up on the mathematical techniques. So did gauge theory come to you via Roger? Do you think? Oh. Uh, part, in part, it was a nice number of things. Partly that, partly at the same time, um, Is Singer, who was pally with uh, Chern and Yang. Chern and Yang had talked together and realized that gauge theory of physicists <coughs> were all the same as the connections of the fire bundle and so on, which Chern did. And Singer was in that group, his friends were Singer, Chern, and he told me about them. So, and I went to MIT and talked to them. So, there was a very quick interchange. We discovered that uh, what mathematicians had been doing. And what physicists were doing were really very close, all this work on anomalies and stuff. <coughs> so that was independent of mm-hmm. economies, Roger, but the two things blended nicely together. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> so, yeah, yes, it was a whole collection of things happening more or less at the same time. Very fast moving. Look back at it, and a lot of these things happened in a year or two. Yes. You know, now we think of te- decades and so on. Yes. So things move slowly. But at that time, when the things are happening, it can be very fast. Mm. Yes. Well, Yang Mills was around since the 50s. But yes, it, but he would be in dormant, really. Yes, nothing really happened. Nothing happened. The physicists didn't, didn't really find uses for it. And, uh, and of course, you know, my, one of my contemporaries at Cambridge was Ronald Shaw, who wrote his thesis 
independently on Young Mills, and his supervisor, Salam, said, it's not worth publishing. I see. Poor chap. It was another one of those independent discovery things. That, yes, uh, yeah. yes, it was, because it was around the time. But in his case, poor chap, he, he, he's in his thesis, hidden in the university library. And there is a lot of references. People now give him rather, you know, credit 50 years after the time, but his career was rather ruined because you know, instead of making a big step forward and moving on, mm. he was shunted sideways. And, right, right, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. But I knew him well. He was one of my, my contemporaries. One of the, um, you, was, you said that you and Roger were both, uh, um, in, at least notionally, students of Hodge. Oh, yeah. And I noticed in um, one of these questionnaires that uh, you put down Herman Weil as your, one of your great heroes. Yes, and yes. And I'm pretty sure that he's one of Roger's great heroes as well. So. Yes. Well, I, I only met, didn't, never actually met, spoke to Herman Weil. I did actually see him. The Amsterdam Congress in '54. I think Roger may have been there too. Somebody mentioned that. I think he might have been. I think all the graduate students, second-year graduate students, and Amsterdam was just across the way, so yeah. a natural thing to go there. And I, he was the man who gave the talk, giving the field medals out to Sarah and Kadara. So I saw this big man up there, and knew. And I went to Princeton in '55. Unfortunately, he died just before I arrived, so we never actually. Met, but influence was still there, and I followed his work was, was still you know, over the years. Every time I did anything, I find Herman Weil was a guy first. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think it's it, things like that, isn't it? Was, it? Somebody might be in a similar ris- relationship with Cartan. They find that Cartan's yes. done everything just before they That's right, yes, before, yes. Before. But it was, you know, I didn't keep the, the Herman Weil thing. I was asked only a few years ago, five, ten years ago, to, to write an obituary for the US National Academy of Sciences mm-hmm. of Herman Weil. Oh, gosh. They, for 50 years, he'd been lying yeah. around undone, you know. So they asked me, and I said, great, but I mean, 50 years after the time, it's unusual. So I, I used it on occasion to find out what happened in the 50 years <coughs> since. Yes. Usually you had to predict this man's work will be important for the next 50 years. Here it was e- easy. Look what happened in the last 50 years, see what his influence was. So I right. turned it around. Right. And it was really not a rather nice chance to pay my respects in that way. Because right. he had a conformal theory of gravity as well. He, he had lots of things. He, he had <coughs> almost every good idea you find that uh, you know, he. And the, like, <laughs> Electromagnetism combined with yes. gauge theories. Yes, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I see. Um, I was going to go back and talk about the different students that you had while you were in Oxford. And it, it's often written down that Glenis was your first student here. Is that Glenis Luke? Well, uh, when I first came here, I sort of inherited or acquired a few students who <coughs> were here and been looked after by you and James, rather topologists. And some of them weren't my students officially, but de facto. Uh, Luke Hodgkin was one, uh, uh, some early ones. Uh, Glynis came from Australia, <coughs> may have been the first of my new, of the new lot of students I acquired. Um, and then Graham Siegel must have been mm. <coughs> similar time. He, he came, went first to Cambridge and then moved over. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yes, yeah, so they, they, they from that period. And so I had students regularly from then onwards. But then I went away to Princeton and then when I came back, I got a bumper crop. Yes, yes. Well, the, um, those ones from the 70s, the early 70s, yes. that uh, certainly includes Francis and then Simon. So Simon Donaldson and uh, <coughs> John Rowe and uh, Michael Murray. and They, they were all uh, you know, one, one yes. uh, cohort. Yes. And uh, Lisa Jeffrey was in that? Uh, she was late, yeah, later. later. And she's younger. And Ruth Lawrence. And Ruth Lawrence. Well. The, had three very bright women students. Yeah. At the end of my career, you know, yeah. Francis and Lisa Jeffries and, and Ruth Lawrence, all very different. Mm. Yes, I, I got them. So they, I had students, and I had Peter Cronheimer after that lot too. Well. Mm. <coughs> so it was 
one of the benefits of going back from Princeton was that I got these a chance to get these good graduate students. Mm. Mm. Most of them came from Cambridge. Right. Yes. Yes, it was a, a, a unique crop. Yeah. I mean, do you have any sense of uh, why? Why were they were suddenly, you know, was it, what was it in the water that suddenly... Well, um, Cambridge, of course, had a lot of very talented students. <coughs> Depending on their interests, they would you know, naturally work with somebody in that field. And at that time in Cambridge, there probably wasn't anybody working in some of the fields. And I was, <coughs> I'd come back from Princeton, people knew about me, and so somebody, their supervisor said, why don't you go and work with a TA in yeah. Oxford? Mm -hmm. But Francis, Francis Cohen, for example, she didn't come to work with any particular topic, she came to get my advice mm -hmm. about where she should go. Mm -hmm. I told her, she said, <laughs> go to Harvard, or whatever, she ended up coming, coming to Oxford. So, uh, but still, people insisted that she come and talk to me. And uh, <coughs> Simon Donaldson first started to work with Nigel, then he shifted to me. Uh, I think the point is, if you've been around long enough, especially you come back from America, you, you, you naturally attract students, or mm. people, people that send them your way. Mm. When you're first starting off, you're a young man, and you know, mm. students are hard to get, to get mm. <coughs> unless they're on the ground locally. Mm. But most of my students, well, Nigel was an exception, he was an Oxford student, and, uh, and uh, Peter Cronin was an Oxford student. <coughs> but um, a lot of the good ones came, came from Cambridge. What um, led to your first meetings with Ed Whitten? Where, was, where did that...? <coughs> oh, well, that's very, <coughs> very clear in my mind. Uh, in, in the, in the mid-70s, when we discovered that we mathematicians were doing similar things to what the theoretical physicists were doing in terms of computing anomalies and so on, <coughs> I went across to talk with Romain Jacquif in MIT. Mm -hmm. and, and so we had a meeting in his office with a group of younger, younger people. <coughs> and one of the younger people was Ed Whitten. And I remember he was that time a junior fellow at Harvard. He'd been brought in. And I remember by the end of the meeting, it was quite clear to me <coughs> that he understood more than the other guys. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to explain what we were doing in mathematical terms, and then he was obviously much sharper, followed it better, and so I ended up by inviting him to come and spend a couple of weeks in Oxford. Um, same time when I invited Dick Manton to come from uh, Cambridge. And he spent two weeks here, and gave a lot of lectures. <coughs> I remember what it was like. You know, in the physics department, I not that. And uh, made quite a, quite a bit of a splash, and then I, I kept up with him ever since then. But I got him very, you know, he was still barely on the, off the ground. Right, which must have been what seventy six or seventy seven. Early uh, middle seventies, yeah. yes. Because I remember seeing him in seventy six at a conference in America, and uh, he was telling us all about twister theory, which he he hadn't exactly re reinvented, but no. he picked it up from Roger. Yes, right. well, he, he, he spent time here, you see. Mm -hmm. Two weeks was just but that's long enough to pick things up. And he's here about 70, well, it must have been 74, so I went, to, went over to MIT. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of contact with him. <coughs> but uh, that was you know, a time when there was a lot of talk with the physicists. Many of the physicists I talked to, where he was by far the sharpest, quickest, mm. although he was a young man. Mm. Uh, he knew so much. But it's, yes, it's often pointed out that it's, I mean, well, the fact that he got the Fields Medal, that, yeah, uh, yeah. that he's, uh, as, you know, as a physicist, he's just an extraordinary mathematician. That's right. <coughs> he knows better, more mathematics than many yeah. mathematicians. <laughs> and one of the, I mean, one of the things I do remember when you and Roger were talking about uh, twisters was there was this tension between um, what, was it going to be Romanian or was it going to be Lorentzian? Yes, yes. And, um, for the for the mathematicians, there's a sense in which it all works much better if it's Riemannian. But Roger was always um, 
adamant that it had to be about the world, and therefore he wanted it to be uh, Lorenzian. <coughs> yes, well, I mean, that, that's true. And I mean, when we came in mathematically, we, we, we came from the point of view of Romanian geometry, and we saw how it fitted in nicely there, and they gave you very clean results, all the instantons and calculations. I knew, in principle, of course, it has to do with physics, had to do with Lorenzian, but there were all these people talked about wick rotations, you know, you just yes, change the sign. Yes, yes. A bit glim, of course. Yes. <laughs> and in recent times, I've got rather more interested in the Lorentzian theory myself and see that there's much, there are many much subtler things going on there. But I didn't know, know from Roger that physics had to do with the Lorentzian case and uh, something you did one way. But at that time, the physicists were quite happy, the people doing Feynman integrals were quite happy with working with Euclidianization mm. and doing functional integrals and then changing the sign afterwards. Mm. So uh, it wasn't that we told the physicists generally you do the Romanian case. They, they were doing it already themselves. Mm. And uh, they they, did, they were working on instantons, which were in the Euclidean context. <coughs> but Roger, his tricity was a bit... So there was this, uh, not a gap, but also different points of view. Uh, but uh, Richard Ward, who was, uh, worked with Roger, uh, pushed off a bit in that direction. Yeah, but it was, a, again, interesting. But it was a bit like a repeat of what happened with Hodge. You see, Hodge took Maxwell's equations, mm. which were Lorentzian, mm -hmm. and took their Romanian counterpart and developed Hodge's theory. And he knew that he was just copying the formalism. He knew that the, the mathematics were very different, but the formalism was very important. And he got the right, right, right ideas. So the transition from um, the Lorentzian picture to the Romanian picture, he, he did uh, kind of by Hodge. And in some sense, I and Singh had to do the same thing with the Dirac equation. We took the Dirac equation and we turned it, took a Romanian version of it. Nobody had done that before. Right. And we made made use of that right. in a way that hadn't been done before. I always say that Hodge and uh, Dirac had talked to each other. Mm. They were professors in the same department for 30 years. <laughs> they would have done all that and I had been down for a job yeah. but because Dirac didn't talk to anybody. No, he was notoriously <laughs> taciturn. That's right, and Hodge was very extrovert, but, and they were very good, there were only two of the four professors and they must have met on a daily, regular basis. And, and Hodge had made this transition to Romanian geometry in terms of forms. It was just waiting. For someone to do the same thing with the Drac equation, but it didn't happen. <laughs> There's, um, of course, people aren't responsible for their own Wikipedia page, but on, no, the, I, on your. Well, I don't know, but I mean, I, I can't handle it. I mean, I, I, I know how to press a button saying Wikipedia, right. see, but I didn't. No, no. Well, um, yours is, um, has quotations embedded in it, and there's one very extremely charming one, which, which has you saying, Algebra is the offer made by the devil to the mathematician. <laughs> yes. The devil says, I will give you this powerful machine. It will answer any question you like. All you need to do is give me your soul, give up geometry, and you will have this marvelous machine. Did you yes. ever did yes, you I say did. that? Yes, I did. I made a lecture about that. Um, I called it the Faustian offer, you know, yes, yes. bargain. And I really believed it in a certain respect. I mean, algebra is definitely a machine. Once you've got the rules, you plug in the formula, mm -hmm. it rolls along by itself. And you don't need to think every time what this means. You just take the output the other end. So it's a black box in some sense. You put in the formulas, the machine grinds on. So whereas with geometrical thinking, you're trying to understand every stage, why this is true and why this... It's harder work because you have to step every time you understand the, all the machinery by clock. Uh, but, it, it, you, but you don't lose sight of the, the meaning of things. So in some sense, you, it's right. You give up your soul in return for this machine, which now can be called a computer, it can be an algorithm. And I think that was the difference between Newton and Leibniz. See, Newton did all these calculus and applications of calculus for the dynamics in geometrical terms. He drew pictures. 
you understand that orbits are going round. <coughs> the Leibniz school, for them, calculus was a formal algebraic operation. Mm -hmm. you know, and they were very successful. And subsequently, of course, <coughs> it, it took over. The geometrical way of thinking of Newton was too hard for anybody who wasn't as good as Newton. Whereas anybody could you know, still do dy, dy by dx. Mm -hmm. So the Leibniz school won in that sense. But if you do go too far down that route, you, you lose contact with you know, the reality of what, what the things are supposed to mean. So I feel quite strongly. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I mean, of course, you make a statement like it's very provocative. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the algebra didn't like it at all. No, no, no. But the, but, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I could imagine Roger making essentially the same statement. Yes, yes, I, 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 he, he is a, he thinks. I mean, geometry and physics are to people like Roger or mm -hmm. to, to, to people like Newton. Mm -hmm. uh, are aspects of the same thing. You think, in terms of the physical world, we think of the physical world as this room we're in, and mm. we manipulate things in it. Mm. And uh, geometry is the natural language mm -hmm. for dealing with physics, at least at some level. Mm. And obviously, Anna Roger is a, he's that kind of ge physical geometer. I'm, uh, I have the same view from the other side. I'm the mathematician. My understanding of physics is Hermann Weyl and, all, and Einstein. Okay, I, he and Roger and I both share. This is unbridled admiration for Einstein. Yes. yes. I think Einstein is now. I keep going back to Einstein's papers to uh -huh. understand them more. You know. and I like the famous quotation, you know, the, when Zhou Enlai, the Chinese leader, was asked what he thought the long-term influence of the French Revolution was, he said it's too early to tell. <laughs> yes. So when people say, uh, was, 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 was Einstein right, was Niels Bohr right on quantum mechanics? Mm. Too early to tell. We've got another century. <laughs> yes, because quantum mechanics is is not devoid of geometry, no, but, no, you, but you struggle no, with No, but Einstein was, still didn't like the fundamentals of quantum mechanics. He always uh, tried to get, argue it about. And, and people think that he lost the battle with Niels Bohr, but I, I, I think the, ma the question is still open. I, th yes, I think it's, yes, yes. Uh, there are still, so I, I, I think Einstein will, you know, come back and, yes. <coughs> and give another century. Yes. But so then, we shouldn't be in a hurry. The frontier of physics has this kind of scorched earth uh, <laughs> feeling right. behind it, and you, you feel that perhaps there are these many problems that are, the frontier has left behind. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think, you, you know, because you have, physics, particularly nowadays, is a kind of bandwagon effect. You, you get on the latest uh, uh, machine that is cutting its way through, and you forget everything else, except for a few oddball chaps like Roger and others who mm. think uh, outside the box. and. That works very well, but it can miss out the things of the future. Then you have to go back and pick up yes. all the ideas that were left behind. Yes, yes. And so I, I think there's a, uh, in the present system of very fast moving mm -hmm. subject matter, also university appointments and publishing papers, puts a lot of pressure on people to keep up with the front line, mm -hmm. to uh, follow the leader. Mm -hmm. And that's not so good for the science as a whole. You want to have diversity of inquiry, you want people following up oddball ideas, and if there aren't enough of those, eventually you'll be stuck. The, 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 your marching column will hit a brick wall. And you have a, yes, a monoculture, <laughs> you'll have a monoculture. Exactly, that's yeah. a no diversity, we want biodiversity yes, yes. <laughs> of ideas, which is actually, of course, interesting enough that the people have taken that idea of uh, uh, selection, natural selection, in, into the language, mm. world of ideas, and say, mm. you want a lot of ideas, and the best ones survive, and, and mm. so on. So it is, it's, I think it's true. Okay, well, I think we have to stop now because the, uh, your, your birthday conference That's stresses right, yes. it for us. So yes. I'd like to say thank you very much. Well, thank pleasure. you for joining me. And I look forward to coming for our next birthday. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>